Hello, Grove family, friends. We're glad you chose to join us online. We are in week seven of our summer series. We're moving through the book of Ephesians. Today, we're, we're switching from chapter three into chapter four, which represents a significant shift because Paul is moving from the theological section of the book into the very practical section of the book. He's, he's taught us how to think and presented truths to us. Now he's going to spend the last three chapters of this, of this letter showing us how to apply those truths. And today he's starting with, with the critically important truth of unity. The importance of unity. That, that we as Christians, as believers, are unified in our faith, and that our church stands as one moving in the same direction. Glad you're here with us. Uh, we're glad you're going to listen and learn and grow. Let me encourage you again to be turning to Ephesians 4 if you haven't already done that, and uh, grab that note page. We're, we're, uh, we're going to be in the first six verses today, and this, this is a, sh a short little section of verses, but it is power-packed. It's filled with all kinds of, all kinds of just, I mean, powerful statements. And so I, I want you to strap in because we're going we're gonna to be moving rather, rather fast today. And as you're turning to Ephesians 4, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take you back to, to Mark chapter 3. It's in Mark chapter 3 that Jesus was entering into a house. It had been a, a busy 24, 36 hours for Jesus. It began the day before in the synagogue. And it was, it was there in the synagogue that there was a man who had a withered hand. And Jesus had healed that man, which, which just literally presented a firestorm because it was, it was a healing that took place on the Sabbath. And as far as the Jewish leaders were concerned, Jesus had now violated the, the Sabbath law. And so you can imagine all that was going on in the synagogue that day as Jesus was being called out. And I just want you to think about that. This is God healing a man. And now these men are telling God, about what's really supposed to be happening. So, so Jesus heals, and then Mark chapter 3, verse 13 tells us that Jesus went up on a mountainside. It's probably in the evening, moving, moving into nighttime. Verse, four tell, verse 14 tells us that Jesus officially appointed, at this point, his 12 disciples. There, there were a bunch of people that were following him. He chose 12 of them. Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 15, gives us a little bit further insight because it tells us that Jesus went up in the mountains, mountainside and then he prayed all night. And then when morning came, that's when he chose the 12 disciples. He, he was clearly in communion with God, seeking wisdom as he was going to make this really critically important decision. The, the, the 24 hours completed, Jesus had to be absolutely exhausted emotionally spent, emotionally spent in the synagogue, healing, praying, choosing. He needed a break. So Mark chapter 3, verse 20 tells us that he entered into a house. But, but as he's entering into this house, there's going to be no break in the action. Upon his arrival, he's confronted with another crowd of people. His fame is following him. And so there, 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 there is absolutely no getting away. And that's, that's when his family showed up, literally. His mother, his brothers, his, 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 his siblings, they showed up. And here, here's the deal. The, his siblings had decided that he was crazy. They, they literally thought he needed to be locked up. And, and, and so, so they, they, they were coming to get him. If you're the sibling of Jesus, it might make a little bit of sense because, again, here's a guy claiming to be God. There, there, were, there were more than enough miracles at this point to prove that he was exactly who he claimed to be. But you have to think, if this is your, if this is your sibling, I mean, I could just imagine if my brother Brent was telling me that he was God, I'd be locking him up too. Do you know what I mean? So his siblings are coming to get him. What they want to do is put him into one of those, those jackets with the very long sleeves they could tie behind his back, get him into a padded room, haul him off to, to, to Happy Dale's sanatorium. And while Jesus is dealing with this with his siblings, suddenly a contingent of religious leaders showed up from Jerusalem. They've traveled 70 miles north up to the region of Galilee, and what they're trying to do is discredit Jesus. So they accused Jesus of being demon-possessed. Here's what they said in verse, in verse 22. He is possessed by Beelzebub. 
by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. And at this point, Jesus responds. He needs to say something. And his response starts in verse 23. He, he looks at these guys and says, how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end will come. A house divided against itself will not stand. A house divided against itself will not stand. Would you say that with me? A house divided against itself will not stand. Come on, one more time. A house divided against itself will not, it will not. Jesus was right. The accusation of the religious leaders right here is, is just absurd. There's no way Satan is going to oppose himself. He, he, would, he wouldn't be looking to drive out demons from people. What he would be doing is looking for more people to possess. There's, there's no way that Satan would give up ground. The point, well, here's the point. For any organization, for any group, unity is critically important. A house divided against itself will not, cannot stand. A group of people are either moving together and focusing on a direction and a point, or they're spinning out. They're, they're, they're spinning out of control, coming apart. And that truth has practical application in a whole bunch of areas of our lives, but it really has application in the church. Unity in the church is essential. We move to Ephesians 4. We're, we're, we're at the halfway point of the book. Like many of Paul's letters, he, he divides them. The first section of the, of the letter, in this case in Ephesians 3 chapters, are, are represented by theological discussion. Paul is presenting truths of God. He's pinning truths upon us. And then the second half of the letter will be devoted to practical application of those truths. Here's the truth, now here's what it means to you. It's the big so what in Paul's writing. We're now moving into these three critical chapters of application in the book of Ephesians. And not surprisingly, the place Paul starts is with the topic of unity. And to that end, I want to share with you a few thoughts that we all need to get crystal clear into our minds. And, and, and it begins with this, the importance of unity. The word unity speaks of oneness, an agreement, an agreement among people, a unanimity among people. It's a group of people who are tied together in a common purpose. They're, they're, they're tied together and they're pointed in the same direction. They're focused on the same goal. They're all moving to the same place. And what we need to understand as Christians is simply this. Unity is a command. God expects the church to be unified. But the, the problem with this topic is that in our world, it's getting harder and harder to believe that we actually could be united about anything. And all you need to do is turn on the television or, or turn on the internet at any given moment, and what you're going to find out is that we live in a divided world. The, the world is at odds with itself, at odds concerning truth, concerning morality, concerning responsibility, at odds concerning priorities, at odds concerning behavior or speech, at, odd, at odds concerning fairness, love, grace, justice. It, it odds spiritually about who the real God is, about the, is there even a God, and, it, and, and about heaven and eternity and how you get there. And that disunity in the world has, has seeped its way into the church. It's, it's nothing new. Paul was dealing with that with the Ephesians. All around we, we can look all around today and we'll find churches that are spinning out of control. Spinning apart is, is the people of the church are disunified. What you need to know is that it flies in the face of God. 
God wants people united, and it leads to, to, to three simple but key points. Would you write them down? The first one is this. Our focus, our purpose as a church is the Great Commission. Matthew, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Right, right before Jesus left, he put it in front of us. The purpose of the church is simply to do one thing, that is make disciples. Our task as a church is to go into all the world and make disciples. The word disciple simply means follower. The church exists. The reason the grove exists is to do this. Our job is to go to the world and help people to become followers of Christ. Now, Jesus says there's two tasks that we need to do in order to accomplish this goal, to accomplish this purpose. And the first one is evangelism. Evangelism is all about helping somebody who does not know Jesus. They're out of relationship with him to come to a knowledge of him and to come to the point where they accept him as their Lord and Savior. And then the second step of making disciples is an educational process. That means leading people to maturity. That's helping those that have been won to now come to a complete and full understanding of who God is and what, he, and what he says. This is where we get serious about the Bible and taking the Bible and implanting it into people's lives. This is the focus of the church. God wants us united. He wants us one in purpose around this task of making disciples, which leads to a second truth. And that is that disunity absolutely stops the work of the church. In fact, disunity stops the church right in its tracks. When the members of a church are focused on different things in, in different directions, then it's not pushing forward. What it's doing is it's, it's spinning in place. Every minute that is spent not focusing on God's purpose for the church is a minute that's wasted. And on top of that, it's a moment that will never come back. It's gone forever, which leads to this third truth. It's the reason why the enemy works diligently to disrupt our unity. Paul, talking in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 12, he, he says that Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. And, and what Paul is saying here, he's speaking to the Corinthian church which, by the way, was a church that was just fraught with all kinds of problems and issues and disunity. And Paul is like pulling his hair out as he's talking to these people. And, and, and some, of their, some of their problem was that they were, they were like at odds with each other. And Paul is teaching them that the religious leaders that are helping them be like this, these false disciples, these false apostles, these false teachers that are coming into their midst, well, where did they learn it from? Well, they learned it from the king of this. And that would be our enemy, Satan himself comes into the church masquerading as an angel of light. I don't know if you've ever thought of it this way, but there's moments when Satan literally comes to church here. And his goal is to, is to stir it up, is to pit it up, is to get us focused in instead of focused on our purpose and direction. Because he knows the minute that I'm having a problem with you or you're having a problem with me or that we're moving towards whatever thing that I think that we need to do or you need think we need to do, the moment we get to this point is the moment that we have stopped living our purpose. And for that reason, Paul says that unity is key. And he's telling us that as a church, we need to seek unity. And it leads to a second thought, and that's the responsibility. Who is responsible for making unity a reality? Now, I, I, I believe that we would all agree that in any organization, including the church, unity and of thought and purpose are essential. And so God calls each of us to responsibility. He wants us to do our part. We have to claim responsibility to make it happen. And the responsibility for unity begins with God himself. God laid the foundation for unity in our relationships with one another. You can read all about the work that God did in Ephesians chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 3. And really, going back to Ephesians chapter 1, this has been a key, this has been one of the key components of Paul's writing, that he wants us to know all that God has done to bring about the unity. And I, I, wanna, I want to call a few things to your memory that, we, that we've talked about over the last six weeks. First, first, Paul was talking about this mystery of God that was laid out. And the mystery of God was simply this that the Gentiles would be heirs together with Israel. 
The Jews and Gentiles are members together of one body, that we both partake of the promises of God. The heart of God is not that one people group would be saved. The heart of God is that all people would be saved. God wants nobody left out. God wants the world united under the umbrella of his love and grace. And the second thing that God did was bring Jesus to us. The work of Jesus made unity possible. Because of his great love, Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 4, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. You, you want to know why Jesus died on the cross? This is it. Jesus died. He paid my debt. He paid your debt. He paid our debt. He paid everybody's sin debt so that we could all receive God's grace, so that we could all be forgiven, so that we could all be adopted into the family of God. God's heart was that all the world would be saved. Jesus paved the way through his death. And the third thing that God did was then take a sledgehammer, literally, to the dividing wall of hostility that exists between the races. God is not a racist. God, God, when God looks at people, he does not see color. He does not see nationality. What God sees is people that are saved or people that are lost. And for people that are saved, he rejoices. And for people that are lost, he grieves. And he wants all the people that are on the wrong side of the fence that are lost to be over here. God has bridged the gap through Jesus. And so what he did is he took the sledgehammer and he broke down the dividing wall of hostility that exists between races, between Jews and Gentiles, between the people who claim to be in God and the people that they said were away from God. He... God blew it up. When it comes to unity, God laid the groundwork. He did the work. He made it possible for unity to exist. Then God, then God gave us a great gift. And the great gift is named the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, what I want you to know here, is the great enabler of unity being able to happen. The book of Ephesians speaks of some of the ways that the Holy Spirit works in our lives. Let me just say, while the Holy Spirit is mentioned here a lot, this isn't the only way that the Holy Spirit works. If you really wanted to see that, we would have to spend weeks and weeks and weeks in a study on the Holy Spirit because this topic is, is broad. But here in Ephesians, Paul is speaking about the work the Holy Spirit does to enable unity in the church. So how does how does the Holy Spirit? Well, he builds on God's foundation, and he does three things. First, he comes in to every child of God. Every child of God has the same Spirit, the same Holy Spirit living inside of them. I, Paul says in Ephesians 3.16, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being. When you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, Acts chapter 2, verse 38 says two significant things happened. When you accepted Jesus and were baptized into him, two significant things happened. When you died to yourself and came to Christ, two significant things. One, your sins were forgiven. And the second is you received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Wiped clean, imbued with the Holy Spirit, literally living in, inside of you. The second thing that the Holy Spirit does is he brings us to a sameness. We become part of the same body. Ephesians 3, chapter 6 says, the mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in, in the promise of Jesus Christ. And what, what Paul is talking about here when he's talking about the body is the church. We, we have come together into one church. There are not many different churches. There is one church. And when we talk about church here, we're talking about the big picture church, the capital C church, the, the, the kingdom of God church, the church that God sees across the world. There, 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 there are not some really cool churches that God thinks are wonderful and some churches that God's not so thrilled about. There, there's, not a, there's not a pecking order of churches in God's heart, in God's sight. There's one church. And when you come to Christ, you are members of that one body, that one church. And then the Holy Spirit does something else that's amazing. He gives us all equal access to God. 
Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18 says, For through him we both have access, Jews and Gentiles, we both have access to the Father by one spirit, not just the Jews, not just the in crowd, all of us, all of us in Jesus Christ, all, all of us who have accepted the work, the foundational work that God did through his son, Jesus, all of us who have accepted that have the spirit in us that makes us one body, which gives us all access to the family of God. The Holy Spirit is an amazing gift. And his work enables unity. We are all called by the same name, with the same Father, in the same church. So, so God lays the foundation. The Holy Spirit enables it by bringing, by, by bringing us gifts. But that's not the end of the story concerning responsibility. When it comes to, to living in unity, you have a huge hand in helping making it happen. What God wants you to do is commit to personal responsibility. In fact, here's how Paul says it in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. He says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. I, lo I love this word, effort. Make every effort. Every effort is really one word in the Greek. Spudadza. And, 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 and what it's speaking of is, is a pushing or a hastening along towards something. The picture that immediately comes into my mind when I, when I think of this word is, is a cardiac care unit in a hospital. Have you ever been in one of those? Maybe, maybe not as a patient, but is, some, is visiting somebody who's been there? And, and if you've been there, like I have many times, then maybe you have witnessed one of those code blues that go, go off. Have you ever seen that? I mean, in a hospital, when a code blue is called, somebody someplace in the hospital, lots of times in a cardiac care or an ICU unit, their, their heart is, is stopped. They're, they're in arrest. And so suddenly the, the monitors go off, which sends off an alarm. And then you can hear it coming over the loudspeakers, code blue, and it's telling where. And then, and then people in the hospital, nurses, doctors, they're literally dropping what they're doing, and they are, they are running with purpose. They're making haste to this room. They're, they're grabbing everything they need along the way. Every other priority is dropped, and their focus is on this one thing. And that's the picture Paul is painting of unity. Drop everything and make every effort in your life to keep the unity of the Spirit. The Spirit has already brought it. We're one body with the same Spirit inside of us, with equal access to God. The Spirit has brought unity. Make every effort to keep the unity the Spirit brings through the bond of peace. You are a key factor. If unity is to reign in the church, if unity is to reign in our church, you are a key factor to enabling it to happen, which raises the question, how? How, 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 do, we, how do we enable unity to, to, to work in the church? And, is, and that, that, that's this third idea that I, that I want to put in front of you. And the question I really want to ask, and the place I want to camp over the next few moments, as we flip the page to the practical side of the letter, Paul spits out a series of encouraging commands. They fly out of his pen like a machine gun. I mean, it's just like, I mean, he's just, he's just we could spend weeks talking about every one of these topics, and Paul just blows them out at us. Our, our job is to take them in to write them down, to fix them in our minds, and, and, and to meditate on them, and to ask the question, how are we doing? So according to Paul, there are several areas you need to focus your attention on if we are going to allow unity to reign. If you're going to accept responsibility, then you need to do a few things. The, the first one is this. You need to get your character in order. You need to get your character in order. Paul, Paul lists five primary character traits that must be in place if unity is going to reign in the church. Here's what he says. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2. Be completely humble, gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. And before we take a moment and look at these five characteristics, what I want you to do is 
take a moment and look at the second word, completely. Paul says that we're supposed to be absorbed here. Paul's encouragement is to fully embrace these qualities. And by the way, they come to you through the Holy Spirit. So as as the Holy Spirit has given you the grace, the ability to be these things, Paul says fully embrace them. Be complete in these things. So what are the qualities? Well, it begins with being humble. Be humble. And being humble really means having a proper perspective of yourself. The word word speaks about having an attitude of lowliness. It's really the complete antithesis, the opposite of anything that is prideful or arrogant. People who are humble are taking pride and arrogance and they're putting it away and they're looking in the mirror and they're seeing themselves for who they really are. And you know, when I get alone and I look in the mirror, it's easy to see. I am a flawed human being. Anybody else here relate to that? I have my issues. I got my problems. I I have my struggles. And when I look in the mirror and I see who I really am, what it does is it drives me to a point of being humble. Unity in the church begins with that attitude. We We don't pridefully demand our way. We're humbly willing to take on the nature of a servant. It, it, it makes sense. Haughtiness and arrogance don't lead to unity. They typically lead to some kind of conflict or explosion. And, and Paul's telling us to be very careful here. When we come to a relationship with haughtiness and arrogance, what we're going to do is blow the relationship up. So Paul begins here. If we want unity in the church, then it begins with a group of people who are coming at each other with humility. And then it moves to the second quality, which would be gentleness. And and when Paul speaks about being gentle, he's talking about carefully navigating your response to other people. The word here that's translated gentle is sometimes translated being meek. In fact, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, this is the word that's used in, in those Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The word, the, when you think of the word meek, you think of somebody that's kind of like, you know, weak, unable, you know, sitting in a corner, kind of hiding. But that's not what the word meek means at all. It's not what gentle, it's, that, is, that is not the connotation here. When you think of somebody being meek, really what you're talking about is something that is strong, but is under control. This is that big, strong horse that a farmer would put out in the field to pull a plow. It's, 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 it's reined in. It's, it's strong and under control. Why do we need to be that way? Why? Because, because in any relationship, we're bound to be wrong. Does it happen to you? Someone you love treats you really badly. And in that instant, before you know it, it's like you're done out of relationship, off their heads. But people who are gentle don't respond that way. They're strong. They stand up for what's right, but they don't have to be loud and angry and obnoxious. They can be kind and gentle and forgiving. It was Jesus. If there was Anyone who ever had a right to be angry, it was Jesus. There were so many times he could have responded harshly to the people around him and been completely within his right to do that. But instead, he chose to be gentle with people. The perfect example is when he's on the cross. And as these religious leaders, as clueless as they were, have had him nailed to this place and are now spitting him and reviling at him and making fun of him, his prayer is not, Lord, zap them. His prayer is simply, Father, forgive them. Strength under control, meek, gentle. If unity is going to happen in the church, it's going to be because people come completely humble 
and gentle. And then Paul encourages us with a third characteristic, and that's patience. Let your anger be far removed. Let it be far away. The word, the word, word patient in Greek is, is actually a compound word. It's two, it's two words. It's markothumia. Marco, markothumia means anger. Thumos, explosion. Thumonuclear. And, and, and the markos word means a long way away. Let your anger, the stuff that you're going to blow about, let it be far removed. Be long in your suffering, long in your anger. This is added to the concept of gentleness. When people wrong you and hurt you and do damage, instead of flying off the handle, be patient. Deep breath. Choose to calm down. Choose to put your anger far off. Choose to be gentle, strong, under control. And when you're full of patience, it allows gentleness to reign. A soft word will turn away wrath from others. How many times has it been that somebody said something to me and my response is to just nail them right back and before you know it, when, when I would just stop, take a breath, calm down, let my anger be removed, respond gently. The problem can be averted. Humble. Gentle. Patient. And fourth, the fourth character trait that Paul puts in front of us is bearing with one another which literally means, I love this, putting up with one another. Put up with. Have you, ever had to, have you ever had to do this? Are there people in your life that just really rub you the wrong way? Do you have a family member that you, when you get together, it's just like, <laughs> just grating? In fact, if you had it your way, that, that family member would be locked up and taken far, far, far away and put on an island someplace where they could never get back. I'm sure we all have those people in our lives. What Paul is saying here is that that's not a proper response. Proper response for all those people who grate on you in the wrong way is to put up with them. Put up with them. A godly attitude is to have relationships with everyone. To have an influence over everyone. And and, and truthfully, honestly, friends, God's not asking you to do anything that he hasn't already done. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says that God loved you when you were a sinner. Translated means God loved you when you were his enemy. God didn't love you when you were all cleaned up and tidy and everything was right. God, God put up with you. God has been patient with you and gentle with you. He's been kind with you. He's treated you with respect with the hopes of bringing you along. When God does, does that with us, it just really helps us to set the stage about how we should be doing this with other people. And when you think about it, these first four attitudes all complement each other and build on each other. Humble. See yourself clearly. Not haughty, not arrogant. You come off, you come off the stage, come off the platform. Determined to be gentle. Determine that you're going to be careful how you treat and how you react and how do you respond with others. You're you're going to be patient, long-suffering, allowing that anger to be pushed way off so you can be kind and gentle. And in fact, in the process, putting up with people, hoping to bring them along. And all of these characteristics are grounded in the last characteristic, and that would be love. Be loving. And really what Paul is saying here is to allow this quality to define all the other qualities. Be completely humble. Be completely gentle. Be completely patient. Be completely bearing with one another in love. Be humble in love. Be gentle in love. Be patient in love. 
Godly love is not based on a feeling or any kind of selfish ambition. Godly, godly love is a commitment to give yourself to the people around you, to serve them, to get off your high horse, to pick up the towel and become a servant. And that attitude of grace and service needs to be the beginning of pointing all the other attitudes and characteristics in the right place. Why would I be humble? Why would I be gentle, patient, and bearing with others? Love. I'm here to give. I'm here to love. I'm here to serve. I'm here to support. I'm here for them. Unity in the church is based on these character traits. Paul says, put them on. Let them guide you. Be completely engulfed in them. And then... Paul adds a second list of criteria that centers in unity. And, and, and what Paul is saying here is that we need to cling to foundational truths of the faith. We need to put on a right character, a right attitude, and then we need to make sure that we're putting on the right belief system. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4 says, There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. There, there, there are some simple, basic truths that we need to hold on to. They, they, they can't be compromised. In the church, they're foundational to who we are and what we believe and what we think. So we need to know what these truths are. We need to know. In, in Acts chapter 4, verse 42, we see the first Christians doing exactly this. Acts 4, 2.42 says that they, the first century Christians in Jerusalem, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles were the men that God had revealed the truth to. They were the ones that brought us the writings in the New Testament. And let me, let me just say today, and I said this a few weeks ago, I want to say it again. There are a lot of people rising up today to tell you that they are an apostle. They carry the title prophet or apostle, and it's absolutely false. Those guys don't exist today. There, there are no Peters and Pauls and Matthews running around. Those people, were they, they, they were put in place by Jesus. He chose them. And then he worked through them to bring us this word. And then what the first century Christians did is they devoted themselves to the teaching from these guys. What the apostles and prophets self-proclaim today are trying to say is that they have the authority to speak the Word of God. Listen, you don't need that. You already have the Word of God right here. It brings all the authority right here in the Word of God. It brings everything we need. Come on, church. Amen. Yes? This is the case right here. The first century Christians took this Word from those people and they devoted themselves to it. And what that means is they pressed into it. This word means glued or adhered themselves to it. A couple things really quickly. Our task as Christians is to adhere ourselves to the truth of God. And adhering means that we do two things. Number one, we have to acknowledge the truth. We need to say what is true. And here it is right here. I'm claiming it right here. The Bible is God's word. The Bible is truth. Come on, church. Amen. Yes? This is it. We need to acknowledge the truth, and then we need to conform our minds and our lifestyles to this truth. The truth is not what's running through my head. What's running through my head needs to be conformed to what is written right here. Because if what is in my head conflicts with what's here, it's not my head that's right and this that's wrong. This is what's right. This needs to conform to this. This, on an ongoing basis, my feet, my head, my hands, my heart, need to conform to this. In other words, it needs to change. I need to transform my life, transform my thinking, transform who I am into the likeness of this place. That's what the first century Christians were doing. They were devoted to the task of taking in the apostles' word. They acknowledged the truth, and then they conformed themselves to it. So here in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is laying down seven titles very quickly. And I, 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 I got to move quickly because I'm really out of time. And I got way too much to say. So here we go in the, slide, in the slide booth. Hold on with me quickly. Number one, what are these foundational truths? Seven of them. Number one, there is one body. One. And again, as I said earlier, th there is one church. This, this is speaking of the church. We, we see all these denominational 
denominations and all these other groups. And, and, we, and we think there's all these different things that are pleasing to God. No, there's, there's one church, one. One church. Our, our unity is grounded in the, in, in the truth of God's word. And one church, the believers of the first century, the believers in the 21st century are doing the exact same thing. We are devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching and we are, and we are, we are funding and focusing in on being the unified church under that truth. From there, there's a second one. And that would be one spirit. There's one spirit. And that would be the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit here is part of the Godhead, the Trinity. The the, the Holy Spirit was not created. He, He is God. He's eternal, just like God. And that spirit lives inside of us. When you accepted Jesus, he came in you. He is in your heart. You've been marked with him. Ephesians talked about this back in chapter one, verses 13 and 14. You have the spirit, you've been marked. He's been placed in your lives. It's an imperative that we have a strong understanding of who he is and what he does, how he works and what he does not do and how he does not work. Because just somebody is proclaiming something to be true doesn't make it true. What makes it true is what this book says about what is true. So we need, to be, we need to be engrossed in this book as it teaches us about the Holy Spirit and make sure that we're following that pattern, that plan. There's a third one, and that would be one hope. And that's, that's, that's eternity in heaven. Hope, hope is a confident expectation that something in the future is going to happen. It's not a wish. It's not a dream. It's not a pipe dream. This is a confident expectation. Listen, friends, this world is a blip. And the older I get, the the more I'm I'm coming to know this, that that, that this world is a blip. It appears and it's gone. It's here, it's gone. And what God wants us to do is to be called into this picture of looking to that place. This world is not my home. I am a stranger. I am an alien on this place. I, (coughs) excuse me. I'm getting wound up. Is that all right? I I belong to a different kingdom. It's the kingdom of God. And the day is coming when I'm going to be in that place. I'm going to be in his presence. And I can hardly wait for that day. How about you? There's one hope. There's one hope. That's heaven. And the fourth one is one Lord. And that Lord has a name. His name is Jesus. The word here in the Greek is kurios, Lord. Its most foundational meaning is owner. When we come to Christ, one of the first things that we do is we are baptized. We're immersed. It, It represents a death. We are dying to ourselves. I die. I'm laid down into this watery grave, and I come out. And I proclaim that Jesus is my Lord. He puts a spirit inside of me. He cleans me up. He makes me white as snow. And then he becomes my owner. It's my decision. I've given him my life. And in the prospect of owning, it means he can direct and tell me what to do. Jesus is Lord. And friends, whether people acknowledge it or not, it doesn't change anything. Jesus is Lord. Would you say that with me? Jesus is Lord. There is one Lord. It doesn't matter what the religions of the world are telling telling you. Krishna is not Lord. Buddha is not Lord. There's one Lord. He has a name. His name is Jesus. And the church of God is a church that is united around that truth. The fifth one, there's one faith. Only one. The faith that has been delivered to the saints of God. Jude, Jude writes in Jude chapter, Jude verse 3. It's only one chapter. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once and for all entrusted to the saints. This this word, the, the faith, is critically important. The definite article appears in the Greek. If it hadn't appeared here, then what Jude would have said is, Contend for a faith, like all these other faiths out there are all equal. That's not what he says. He says, we are contending for the faith, the one, the only, the exclusive 
faith. There are not many faith systems. There are not many ways to get to God. There is one way to get to God. His name is Jesus. He is Lord. There's one Lord, one faith. And with that, we had a sixth one. And that's one baptism. The immersion of believing sinners signifying their death to Jesus. The word, the word baptism in the Greek is crystal clear. It means dunk. It means immerse. And it really goes along with the picture because this is the point where we die. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. You're, you, you, in, in Greek language, this word dunk is the only word that's used. It's, it's baptizo, and we've created a whole new English word to, to, to describe this process. Baptism, I am dunked, immersed, I die. There's one baptism, one. Some of you need to do that. Some of you need to do that today. We got water, we got, it's heated, it's clean. We got shorts, we got shirts, we got everything you need. We could baptize you today. You could make that declaration. And the seventh one, there's one God, one God, one God. He exists in the form of a trinity, one Lord, one Spirit, one God, one Father of us all. When we come to God, we accept this truth. There's one God who's represented in three distinct personalities, and yet he's one. Don't ask me to explain it to you. I can't. But this three are one, and this one is three. And it's that God that we submit to and follow. And friends, these... Truths are foundational. They, they are what call us together or drive us apart. What, what Paul is suggesting here is that I need to check my attitude. Be humble, be gentle, be patient, right? And then I need to check my theology. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit. One God, I, I, I need to put them together. And what God wants the church to do is to unify around these things. Now, let me add one more thought here. And that's, a, I, I want to encourage you not to be mistaken. It is not unity at every cost. There are many church leaders today preaching ecumenism. It's basically the thought that all people of faith are equal, and all faiths are equal, and all faiths and all people of whatever faith they belong to are all moving to the same God. So in every city, Columbus included, there is an ecumenical council, and we're bringing Mormons and Buddhists and, and Hindus and Muslims and Christians together, and we're all uniting in the, in the name of God, saying we're all moving in the same direction. And there's not a one of the people that are claiming that that believe that. Now, to, to disagree with somebody theologically doesn't mean I need to be mean and angry and caustic. But in my gentleness, it doesn't mean full. Gentleness means strength under control. Because there is one faith, one Lord, and God has called us to that. One body, one church. The encouragement of Scripture is to raise the bar. Raise the bar and church draw people to the truth. Unity is not about getting anybody who would say, I believe in God, together and saying, we're all okay. No, unity is built on worshiping the true God. The seven ones, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and put them at the center core to form our belief system as it is spelled out in the pages of Scripture, which is God's Word, to be devoted to this truth, to be pressing in, adhering to it. Now, make sure you, me, you hear me say this. When we lift up the truths, the seven ones, we need to take on those characteristics. Humility gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, all encased in love.
So no, it's not unity at all costs, but it is unity. And what God wants is for His church, the church, to be focused, centered, purposed on His priority, which is to bring all people, all people to a knowledge of the truth. Listen, friends, if we're going to accomplish that, unity is critical. It's not going to happen because we're running in different directions. The only way this happens is if we're focused in the same place, the same direction. So here's the question. Are you? Does this describe you? Let me encourage you to to bow your heads. Would you do that? When it comes to you and the church, are you okay? Have you made a commitment to the truth? Have you made a commitment to Jesus? Have you made a commitment to his word? Have you made a commitment to allow him to become the Lord of your life? Have you accepted him as your Lord and Savior? As you have done that, are you taking the next step? Which is to draw together with a body that belong to a church. To be unified. And with that, are, are you helping to move that church along in unity for the purpose of God? For all of us, there's probably a step to take today. An initial step of coming to Christ. A step of repentance about being outside of this unity picture. Determination to be more useful to the task of the church and the purpose of God. So, Father, I pray that you'll help us. Help us to never grow weary in well-doing. Father, I pray that you'll help us to be people who are focused, centered, determined, to be unified to your purpose, to your will, to your goal, to your heart. So, Father, help us. Help us to be people that are solutions to the problems that plague the world. And, Father, move in us and through us to make a difference. It's our prayer. We lift it up in the name of Jesus. And God's people said,